Hello, 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 and welcome to the Podcast Spotlight, the offshoot series of the Economical Rise podcast designed for podcast fans and brought to you by podcast fans. I'm your host, Danny, and today I am absolutely delighted to have Rindo of the Singapore-based podcast Living It Up in the Lion City. Rindo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Danny. Uh, thanks for having me here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, to get the uh, audience familiar with you, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, sure, Danny. Uh, I am Indian by nationality, and I've been living here in Singapore for about eight years now. You know, so I, I moved here in 2011, mm-hmm. and it it was a short term gig. Uh, you know, then three months turned to six, and six months turned to a year, and then one fine day I wake up and it's been eight years now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so hey, yeah, you know, <laughs> how how are you enjoying Singapore so far? It's it's been great. Uh, it's been awesome. I mean, you know, every single year, you know, I find new things to do and new things to see here, and you know, it's been great. Like I think I've uh, had a good time. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and so um, so yeah, you also mentioned that you know you have a podcast as well. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So um, a friend and I um, host a podcast called Living Up in Lion City. Um, so this podcast is, in at its core, about life in Singapore. Um, you know, we listen. We both listen to a lot of podcasts. You know, and a lot of these podcasts tend to be either, um, you know, uh, from Singaporeans or from foreigners. And there's like two very different perspectives. Um, and you know, Raj, my co-host and friend, uh, and I had conversations about this, and we were like, you know wouldn't be great if we had those two perspectives within the same podcast. Um, and thus, Living It Up in Lion City was born. So we do talk about, you know, um, what is it like to live in Singapore? And, you know, we just throw ideas and, you know, opinions at each other. And it's essentially an excuse to chug down beer, but, you know. <laughs> um yeah, so that's that's pretty much all we do yeah. <laughs> every other week. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, I, I have to say, right, I've listened to a few episodes of yours, and living it up in Lion City sounds to me like the quintessential two guy friends sharing a beer, and then they're like, hey, let's start a podcast. You know, you, you are so on the money. <laughs> <laughs> that is literally what happened. <laughs> because, I, because I can tell you before I started my own, I've had that conversation with, with friends as well, over beers as well. And then one, and then one person would inevitably say, hey, why doesn't someone just record this? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not judging. I'm just saying that, you know, you guys actually took the initiative and, uh, and you know, made it into reality. <laughs> yeah, for sure, you know, this is all, all credit goes to Tiger Beer. So, you know. <laughs> Thank you, Asian breweries. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um I also want to just uh, point this out, right? So I think that um a couple of weeks ago on on Facebook, or maybe it was one of your episodes, you brought the point about how you were sort of annoyed that that a lot of expats were saying that, you know, Singapore has no culture. Yes. Yeah. So could you talk talk a little bit more about that? Oh, for sure. This is like my favorite topic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, you know, so I, I do want to say that this was actually the prime reason why Raj and I decided to start the podcast. Hmm. So, you know, let's, let's rewind to maybe about 
uh, six months ago, I guess. You know, Raj and I are having a couple of beers. And then, you know, so we both listened to this uh, podcast called American Daisies. Mm. Now, the, the nature of the podcast is relevant. But, you know, so this is about, you know, the Indian community, um, you know, based in America. And they talk about, you know, their the identity uh, issues that they deal with, et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the hosts in that particular podcast, you know, made this throwaway joke. It's like, um, what's the difference between Singapore and yogurt? Uh, and then he goes on to say, uh, yogurt has culture. And here's the thing, though. Like, it, it was a throwaway joke. But the thing was that the what happened after the podcast was that they considered that as gospel, right? And this really rattled. I don't want to say rattled. Like, this annoyed me a lot um, because it brought back a lot of conversations that I've had with a, lo- a lot of people, you know, mostly expats, the people that I've known. That so this 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 very common narrative that you know Singapore lacks soul, it it lacks culture and and shit like that. Mm. And you know the reason why this really strikes me a lot, or this really affects me, it's because I do remember when I was you know new here in Singapore way back in two thousand eleven, I bought into that bullshit. Mm. You know, so uh, w- when I moved into Singapore for the first time, of course I was surrounded. You know, I was like thrown literally into an expat bubble. Um, you know. And their opinions tend to um, shape the way you think about the country that you're living in. Of course, I'm new, I'm impressionable. And so, of course, I bought into all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And with every passing year, I find that that particular opinion becomes more and more inaccurate, right? And with every passing year, I realize that their opinions are not born from any sort of objective reality. It is born from the idea that they're just not getting out there and seeing what's there. You know, they're so Mm. taken in by the superficialities of what a particular country has to offer and then somehow base their opinions on it and make it sound like they're the expert of that particular country. Now, Danny, I want to mention at this point that I think there's a very common trend among expats all across the world to, to play world expert to their folks back home and to, um, you know, friends, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So if someone were to be an expat in another country for a couple of months, for example, their Skype calls to their family, for example, is always to the tune of, I'm, I've been here for a couple of months and I'm already an expert in all these things. Right. I'm amazing and, and shit like that, right? And this colors the way that countries are, are perceived. Now, the issue that I've found with, with you know, the narrative about Singapore is that... Um, Singapore tends to have narratives that are almost entirely dominated by expats, which is crazy. Now, admittedly, I've realized that with every passing year, you know, I I discover local content. And so I get a more balanced view and opinion. But I can't say the same about the vast majority of expats who, for various reasons, you know, uh, they want to focus on their jobs and their families and stuff like that. And so imbibing or, you know, immersing themselves in local culture isn't like in their priorities. Mm. So they take certain opinions and narratives at face value. And so the expat narrative tends to be the one that makes the most sense for them on a superficial level. Now, I find that inaccurate. I find that extremely subjective. And, you know, I have this conversation with my friend and we decided that, you know what, let's talk about this. Let's Mm. talk about why Singapore is, you know, looked through a particular lens and why isn't there any balance to that particular narrative. Mm. Um, Yeah, so it's an ongoing journey. We're we're not sure where we're going with this, but at the end of the day, we're, we're 
two friends having a couple of beers, having a good time, you know, talking shit. Because if I talk, if we talk about this with other friends, they're like, oh my God, these two are out again. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> there's also that. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, and the first podcast that we have today is this one called Desi Outsiders, and the episode in question is called English Medicine. So, Rindo, please tell us more about this. Desi Outsiders is, is a podcast that I stumbled upon in my relentless search for podcasts that are not American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've... Uh, you know, I've been trying to diversify my podcast diet and my media diet in general because I've, I've identified that a lot of my beliefs and my opinions and my worldviews have been shaped predominantly by American media. Um, long story short, you know, I stumbled upon these guys after looking for content, you know, that that is specifically talking about um, diasporas, you know, like communities um, of ethnic origin that are outside of that particular, um, you know, country. Right. Um, so Desi Outsiders is a podcast by two girls who are Indian. Um, one of them is, um, from the UK who is of Indian origin and, you know, was raised very conservatively by, by her parents. And the other is, um, an Indian from India, uh, who moved to the UK mm-hmm. and who was raised by very liberal parents. So, the what they do in their podcast is that they talk about different facets of Indian culture and they look at it from their perspectives, which is very refreshing. Um, it, it also helps that these topics are relatable. Mm-hmm. It, it helps that um, these, these two girls are just, uh, I, I just love listening to them. Um, you know, they have amazing voices. Um, you know, they are you know, they're sincere in the way that they talk about things. They're very relatable. And it's like these two people are, people that i would probably be friends with you know, it's <laughs> that kind of thing and that's probably also one of the reasons why i listen to them you know when i'm you know going to work or coming back is mm. it's like it's this very soothing background you know that serves as a space you know where they can discuss ideas and it also helps that these are topics that i can relate to mm. um specifically it, it's about you know different things about indian culture um how it is looked upon from the outside how it's looked from in um, there's also a difference between how um, the Indian diaspora from parents who left the country much, much earlier tend to have this idea that um, India as a country is still where it was back in the 1950s or 60s. Hmm. And um, one of the things that I found fascinating was that, um, let's say, first or second generation um, Indian immigrants who have since become, you know, citizens of that particular country have found that their parents are a lot more conservative than people who actually live in India. Hmm. You know? Um, so, like, after listening to these guys, I started, you know, just, you know, Googling stuff, and I found that there is a lot of communities about, you know, um, desis, which is, you know, the term for South Asians uh, outside of India, Right. In, in 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 countries like the U.S. or in the U.K. or wherever they are, um, talking about their parents being far more conservative and far more strict than um, parents of Indian-born children who live in India. Right. You know? 
So it, and that was like really fascinating to me. So you know, I started listening to them, and and it it, it really helps that you know they they break it down to the simplest of things. Um, you know, they talk about like, oh, you know, a mom's love. They talk about, oh shit, you know, we we don't talk about periods in the family, you know, right. like, you know, and and stuff like that. And so that's great. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, when you were talking about how it's so relatable and how you can listen to it on on your commute and then play, uh, and, and and then you listen to them and they have a very soothing voice. I think that is just one of the wonderful things that I find about podcasts is but is is that you have this whole diverse array of different styles of content and i think this one style that is uh particularly very very effective is this um just couple of friends talking it's basically kind of your show a little, a little bit as well uh and then you know the the, the kind of role they serve is that you know they're, they're like the sort of friends that you 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 will listen to as well if you hang out with them basically they make it very accessible make it very comfortable it's like it's like Comfort food, in a sense. Wow, I love the way you you describe things, Danny. <laughs> I'm gonna steal all of your friends. <laughs> yeah. Comfort food for pasta. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you're the one describing. I'm just summarizing here. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, the the thing that I find fascinating, which you found fascinating as well, was that diaspora and how the people who emigrated became more conservative because. Uh, this was actually the thing that I observed from the Chinese diaspora as well, is that, pe- you know, the Chinese who uh, moved to like Taiwan, Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia, they tended to be more conservative than those back in mainland China. But in that instance, you know, they had Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution. So Yes. So oh, I always yeah. thought that was like the big factor, right? It's like he wanted to to completely erase all tradition and all culture, and that's why the, the people who emigrated are just more... Uh, conservative and traditional in that sense, but I think, but but you know, listening to you and listening to 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 your explanation, I think there may be something deeper going on here. Wow, Danny, I actually hadn't even considered the the Cultural Revolution. Oh shit, yeah, that's <laughs> oh wow. Okay, I need to do a bit more reading about that, but because I always assume that you know, when when you're a foreigner, like so, you know, I I I've been a foreigner for two thirds of my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that foreigners always tend to do is that you always want to, you know, have something that's an anchor, you know, like, mm. um, you know, there's always this thing where you want to just hang on to this little bit, lest you lose it. Right. Um, you know, I like to consider myself, you know, fairly um, open minded and I'd like to consider myself, you know, fairly um at the risk of sounding corny, uh, I like to consider myself, you know, a global citizen and all that <laughs> jazz. But, you know, there are times when I'm super sick and, you know, I'm I'm super down. I'm like, damn, I need me some Bollywood in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so <it's> like, <laughs> so, <laughs> I wish I could relate. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I, I think, you know, we, we all have this need to want to hold on to something that is dear to us at some point in time. And I always felt that the foreigner experience was always about that. Like as a foreigner, you're always out there. You're always, you know, um, right. out of your element, so to speak. And then it really helps to have some sort of, you know, talisman. Right. It doesn't have to be literal. It just has to be a metaphorical talisman to hold on to just to, you know, yeah. Stay sane, I guess. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's so, it's so crazy that you say it. And I think that is actually one of the biggest sort of drivers about why cultures can survive even from, from 
uh, those who emigrate, right, is that they maybe in, in a new country, they feel sort of, uh, you know, uncomfortable, unfamiliar. And then, uh, as you said, they have this anchor that they stick to. And that's why these traditions persist and survive, because they don't want to lose that identity. And because maybe when they come in, that's the only thing that they have, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Man, I mean, I, I, I love how you turn... You know, the 300 words that I just put out <laughs> 10 and make it just sound cooler. Like, <laughs> I, I should record this on my side. You know? <laughs> I'm going to steal every one of these. No, no I mean, I, mean I, I, I am genuinely fascinated by this because, because I've never thought, I, I mean, I, I've experienced this as well because like, I, I studied abroad and, you know, there were times, especially during like Chinese New Year or something, where I, or, or maybe during uh, Singapore's National Day, where I get super homesick, right? And then I will do stuff that I would never do in Singapore, like watch the National Day Parade. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <Or> like, <laughs> I've lived long enough to, in, in Singapore to know that, yeah, that is a big deal. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, yeah, but, but, but I, I totally get that perspective. I just, it's just all coming back to me now. And yeah, thanks so much for bringing that back. Can I ask, like, so, uh, you know, from, from the podcast that I've been listening of yours, um, um, you know, so, in, in in Wisconsin, was was there um, uh, a community that you could call your own? Yeah, yeah. Actually, there was a Singaporean community, right? And uh, <laughs> you know, when you're talking about expat bubbles. I guess I played it in, in, into a little bit of that as well because I tended to stick with them a lot. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. a, a bit of that might have been due to my own nature because I tend to be a bit more introverted, so I'm not very comfortable with uh, uh, going out and uh, making new friends from, especially friends who are not familiar. So, yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of that as well. I'm guilty. <laughs> I will admit. Hey, I, I feel you, man. Like, <laughs> I was just afraid to talk to people, but then I'm like, damn, you know, I don't want to sound cool. <laughs> I got to go out there. I got to meet girls. And, and to be fair, I think, you know what, for all my talk about, you know, wanting to be more open-minded and shit like that, I think right. uh, the biggest driver for me was was to just meet girls, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That was, has that worked? Well, uh, yes, 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 it has. <laughs> it's, it's been great. <laughs> You know, when, when you're a foreigner, you can make any sort of story that you want about the country that you come from. And like, people <laughs> would believe it wholeheartedly. Like, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, jokes apart. I mean, that's, uh, I, I totally feel you, man. Like, you know, as a foreigner, putting yourself out there takes time, takes effort, and takes persistence. And, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean... <laughs> Yeah, so English medicines, what is it about? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. My co-host always uh, you know, berates me for this. My <laughs> And here I am doing it again. Right, so okay, back to topic. English medicines. Right, so uh, a bit of context about English medicines. That is the term that is used um, in, um, in India um, for for regular medicines, right? Mm. Like in India, it's called Western medicines because there are three established systems of medicine in India. Uh, one is, you know, allopathy, which is, you know, regular medicines that we know. Um, there is Ayurveda, which is a more traditional, um, you know, uh, system of medicine, which often uses, you know, herbal um, stuff. Mm. And then you have homeopathy, which, you know, for some reason still persists, but that's a topic for another time. Um, the reason why I selected this particular topic is because um, English medicines 
is something that, um, you know, any discussion about English medicine in at least where I come from. So I come from this uh, state called Kerala in India. Mm. Um, and, you know, any discussion about English medicine is always, you know, with, with a, there is a flavor of, of, of distrust. You know, it's like, oh, English medicine, like, why do you want to go there? We have, you know, the amazing science of Ayurveda. Um, mm. A bit of context, Ayurveda is like a tradition of using, you know, herbal remedies um, that goes back like thousands of years. So it's, it's mm. a very, it's a very old, ancient craft, um, which, and you know, once again, I'm, I'm not hating on it. Um, it it's just, it, it doesn't, um, you know, hold up to scientific rigor. Mm. Um, there are a lot of remedies which are no doubt effective, but it's only because of, you know, empirical trials over thousands of years, right? Um, it is not something that is, you know, tested rigorously. It is not something that, you know, um, has a lot of studies into it, although there are legitimate universities and, and bodies of research, institutes of research that go into Ayurveda and talk about various properties and all that. Mm. But then for the average person, it's like, oh, you know, English medicines are bad because they're full of chemicals. and But Ayurveda is good because it's full of nature, right? Mm. Um, Danny, have you seen the movie um, Idiocracy? Uh, no, actually. What is it about? So Idiocracy... Um, Idiocracy is about a movie about a guy who, you know, goes forward in time. He's like in this time machine, then he goes forward in time accidentally. He goes like, you know, a couple of hundred years in the future, if I'm not wrong. And mm. he finds that everybody's stupid. Like everybody's dumb. <laughs> so over the last, you know, the previous hundreds of years, you know, people just dumbed down because, you know, dumb people reproduced more than smart people did. <laughs> and then, you know, it just became this thing, right? Okay. So there's this one particular, you know, scene where somebody says, um, oh, the plants need this particular sports drink to survive. And then the guy from the past is like, why though? And then this girl says, oh, because it's got electrolytes. Um, <laughs> and this is something that was based off of an ad, you know, and that's just been parroted for, you know, decades and centuries. And they're like, because it got electrolytes. Um, sorry, once again, the point that I'm trying to make is that a lot of this distrust about English medicine is, you know, based off of the idea that, oh, chemicals are bad. Plants right. are good. And so there is that huge gap in the way that Western medicine is uh, perceived. And that's what English medicine is perceived to be it, like, mm. as a Western import uh, versus Ayurveda, which is more, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's our thing. This is something that we, uh, you know, created. This is something that our culture has, you know, sustained for thousands of years. So we're going to go with that. And this resonates with me deeply because I've had a lot of my family members who eschewed uh, treatment um, from from regular doctors and regular medicines because they believed that green was better. Hmm. Um, and, you know, in, in this particular podcast, you know, both of them talk about it. One of the co-hosts, um, Ankita, is actually from uh, my state, Kerala. Mm -hmm. And she talks about this, you know, that's literally when you go to pharmacies uh, in any, you know, town in Kerala, you see a pharmacies that says English medicine. Hmm. You know, as compared to all the other stuff over there. So, you know, we, uh, you know, I was going through this and I'm like, yes, these families have had the same conversations. It's like, why do you want to go for English medicines when you have the time-tested alternative? They, they don't even call Ayurveda an alternative. They call it the time-tested method of Ayurveda because that's amazing. Mm. And these are the same guys who also uh, extol the virtues of homeopathy, which I believe is, you know, a fraud. But... <laughs> You know, 
like it it is legitimized in India, by the way. Mm. Um, you can uh, get insurance claims if if you go to Homey Clinic, for example. Really? Yeah, it, it blows my mind, and it it still exists. I actually googled it a couple of days ago just to be sure if it's still the case. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, a lot of people swear by it, so you know uh, there is something to be said about the placebo effect. But you know, uh, if you were to actually hold it up to any sort of scientific rigor. It, mm. it it fails just like it does with Ayurveda. Now I know that you know the any Indian listeners to this particular podcast is gonna find me and you know uh, <laughs> pierce my heart with a pitchfork or something. But uh, that's that's the thing, right? So um, English medicines is all about some sort of inherent distrust in something that is Western, something that has chemicals with little or no basis. Um, to you know why it wouldn't work mm. um, and and they touched about this and you know it's not they don't go into like um and it's very relatable you know they talk about family members who feel this way and i'm like yeah my dad had this too like when my dad had a couple of abscesses in his limb he was like no you know fuck english medicines <laughs> you know like oh, fuck you know western you know whatever and, and shit like that and he was just like cramming uh you know mushed leaves and stuff in a in an abscess you know it I think I was um, 15 at the time. Right. You know, I was I was old enough to scream at my dad, but not old enough to stop him from doing that. Right. You know, so they'd go through all this crap. And then afterwards, they'd be like, oh, shit, now we got to go to a real hospital now. And in my mind, I'm like, wow, you didn't think it was real like, you know, six months ago. And so, you know, I've seen all these things. And when I listened to this, you know, it all came back and I'm like, damn. Yeah, this, this still happens. It's still there, and we have a lot of family members who. Um, I remember this one uh, time when um, an uncle was, you know, trying to buy some uh, drugs from a pharmacy, and he was like, he saw this, you know, green package in in the, uh, I think it was an ointment or something, and then he was like, oh, you know, this is Ayurvedic, and I'm like, why? Because no, it's got to go green, so it must be. <laughs> so, <laughs> So if, if if a guy can be swayed by the color of a package, you know, like how can I trust him about the efficacy of, of Ayurveda, you know? <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's that's just something that I, I wholeheartedly laughed. I wholeheartedly, uh, you know, thought a great deal about uh, like how it was like for me too when I listened to that podcast. And um, I, I do realize that that is something that um, you probably would not have experienced. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, like if, 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 if you talk to any, um, person who is from India, I would be pretty sure that they would have some sort of story that, that is quite similar to what, yeah. what they said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, holy cow, Rindo, that was incredible and so unbelievably fascinating as well. Um, I think the the first thing I want to get into, right, is that, you know, you mentioned about this sort of tension between natural and organic, right? And when I was listening to the podcast, I'm just wondering, is this like a part of their culture, this whole uh, naturalist idea? Is this like a very important part uh, of, of the culture where you're from? Well, Ayurveda is a big part of, of Indian culture. Um, mm. I'm, I'm not going to lie. There are, um, it is... It is an established science, so to speak. Once again, as I mentioned, it is based on empirical trials that have gone on for thousands of years. Like um, there are legitimate, there is credence to 
um, Ayurvedic medicine helping people. So I'm, I'm not going to deny that there, it, it is extremely useful. It has been beneficial to millions of people across mm. the country. What my issue with Ayurveda is that I think the perception that a lot of people have is that because Ayurveda can cure the common cold, it can also cure cancer. No, they believe it? Well, you know, it's... Hey, man, like my uncle thought that something was Ayurvedic because the package is green. So people would believe any kind of shit. You know? So, um, but that, that's the problem, right? Like Ayurveda was, was, of course, a product of its time. Of course, there are certain things like, yes, this root would be effective in healing your sores because there is something about it that helped close the wounds, right? Right. This is obviously something that people learned with trial and error and, you know. Indian culture going back like thousands of years, of course, there was probably a lot of trial and error. Right. You know? So there is some credence to that. But then the thing is that, you know, like as things get better, as people don't die for, you know, simpler diseases like you know, the common cold or influenza and shit like that, it, it gets more complex, you know? So once we've built immunity to all of these um, diseases that we once considered fatal, now we're like, we're better than that. We're, we're stronger than, you know, what they can do. Hmm. And so the more insidious kinds of, you know, ailments affect us. And I struggle in believing that Ayurveda, something that was, you know, from thousands of years can somehow cover those use cases too, hmm. without rigorous testing. Once again, I want to emphasize that there is credence to some of the things that Ayurveda explores, but without the kind of rigorous testing that, you know, um, English medicine tends to have, um, it, it's not a fair argument or it's not a fair comparison. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think that's that's got to be partially explaining why, you know, uh, these beliefs still, still persist today, right? It's because it's been a part of their identity for so long and they just held on to that belief. Uh, but then I think another possible uh, factor that I think might explain this sort of a weird fascination, I guess, with uh, all these different kinds of, uh, of medicines is uh, the issue that I think I, I, I can relate to as well, which is that of um, credibility, or should I say it maybe in a different way, authority, in a sense that um, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but Indian culture, like with Chinese culture, we tend to listen to our parents or our elders and then, you know, growing up, we believe whatever they say, and then we take their word for it. And it's only as we get older that we decide to go and, 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 and learn from ourselves. And so a lot, of our, a lot of those beliefs get passed down, and then that's how they sort of reinforce themselves. You know, when I listen to this episode, I get a sense that there is a bit of that going on, especially, you know, how I believe it was Ankata, she was, she was talking about how, you know, her mom used to tell her this and that, and she would argue and stuff. You know, I, I, when I, growing up, I used to get into arguments with my relatives as well. You know, the one, one big thing that they always said was that, um, cold water is bad for you. <laughs> when, 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 when I grew up, I, I loved drinking cold water because, you know, living in Southeast Asia, it's, it's hot as hell, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I, I didn't get that at all. And there was no reason for it. They were just saying that, oh, you'll mess up your digestive system. And then my, my mom would always scold me for it. It's like, why well, don't drink so much cold water? You know, it's bad for your body. And I, <laughs> I didn't understand that. Yeah, but but do you think that it, that uh, sort of uh, credibility might be another factor that plays into this? Um, Danny, you just described my life in India. Right? 
uh, don't do this. And if you question it, it's like, because I told you so. Of course, they'd come up with reasons like, oh, you know, because it's bad for you, because there's some, you know, hoo-ha that's going to happen in the air that's going to, like, fuck up your system. But essentially, it boils down to this, right? It's like, no, you can't, you know, shower after you eat. Why, mom? Because it's bad for you. <laughs> You know, because I told you so. Yeah, you know, uh, you're absolutely right. I think there is that element of um, authority uh, that, that comes with uh, this kind of, in the way that traditions are passed on. And I think, you know, uh, growing up in India, uh, I, I definitely felt that, you know, uh, to, to the point where it's often hard for me to speak up to authority. Hmm. especially when the other person is Indian. And I found this, like, uh, super weird. Like, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've actually had sleepless nights thinking, like, oh, my gosh, am I being racist? You know, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm challenging other people, but with my fellow brethren, I'm, like, all, you know, deferent and, you know, <laughs> I'm not talking back and shit. <laughs> you know, and it's so weird, right? But, yeah, you're absolutely right. There is some conditioning that goes on with, uh, you know, uh, the authority that comes with just being older than you or you know just because there's some tradition that defines this thing for so many years you can't you you dare not question it yeah yeah and i mean to some extent you know to be fair there are some instances where this authority can be beneficial right like um you know a little wisdom in say maybe you're not you're not you're, you you don't know you don't have a clue about your finances or investing sure experience uh and wisdom will help with that but you know the the parts where I find insidious uh, regarding this uh, notion of uh, authority and credibility and, you know, always listening to your elders is when it actively harms you, right? And in this episode, particularly with uh, with the folk medicine, there was the story I think Akata told about her, her nephew or something that had the tonsils. Yeah. Yep. And then they were saying that they didn't want to have uh, surgery or something because, uh, you know, they didn't believe that in that kind of stuff. They were just going to use homeopathy or something to, to get rid of it over time. And yeah. that was actively hurting the nephew. And it just, it just blew my mind to, to the extent that people will hold, hang on to belief or listen to their elders uh, to the point where they're even putting themselves in, in, in pain and suffering. Uh, Danny, I had a visceral reaction to that. <laughs> like you know something just bubbled up deep inside i'm like mother fuckers. <laughs> you know side note um I, I hope it's okay to swear on your podcast oh like, go ahead go ahead <laughs> like mother <fuckers. laughs> you know it's 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 so fucked up because once again you know it just brought back a flood of memories about you know family members i know who've stuck who've stuffed you know green goop in in some very extremely um um like the worst kind of abscess and they're like nah you know some green goop you know from freshly plucked flowers and leaves ought to do the trick and you know when they have their limbs chopped off you know six months later they don't see the connection jesus you know? christ um, it's like oh yeah but you know uh it happens and shit like that now i so there's, there's a lot of things that we probably that I, I want to unpack about this, like, you know, with, with English medicines and, you know, um, Meenal in the podcast, you know, just touched upon it just a wee bit uh, in that, uh, you know, there is an in inherent distrust in anything that is English. Um, it, it spawns from, you know, um, you know, India and, and Britain has had a long and very uh, painful history. 
Mm. Um, you know, we've been so India has been colonized by you know imperialist like um, yeah the British Empire, uh, you know, for four hundred so years, and it was extremely exploitative. Um, and it has often it has it has colored the way that we perceive anything British. Mm. Um, I d- I do recall that you know when I was growing up, like I had a very limited understanding of colonialism and and all the all the you know after effects of it. But you know going to India, you could actually sense a sense of resentment, you know, uh, about anything related to to Britain. Mm. Um, it doesn't apply to other Western countries like America, for example. Oh, it's the land of you know cheeseburgers and hot girls and and stuff like that. Whereas with with Britain, I think it's a very different story. Um, so. You know, in, in the podcast, there was an allusion to the fact that yeah, because it's English medicine, it's English, and there is you know a certain like oh fuck they fucked with us for 400 years. What's <laughs> going to happen if we have that pill? You know? So when when I was young, when I was growing up there, I haven't thought about this a lot, but I would love to go back and like just to see if that thing still persists. But no, there there is that too. So that distrust, you know, comes from a lot of places. It it could also come from the fact that Medicare is expensive. You know? mm. So it's like, why do I want to spend money for this expensive treatment, these expensive medicines, when I can just go um, do something that my neighbor told me and he swore that it worked on his grandma's, you know, um, uncle's, second cousin's, <laughs> mistress's son. Because that somehow is more legitimate than an actual doctor's prescription, right? Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, I got I got a flashback to uh, my family dinners when they would constantly talk about their nephews or nephews and nephews or aunts and uncles how how this particular method works over that. <laughs> yeah, and, that, yeah. And, and and they would just use that to just shut down your 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 argument or your or your counterpoint immediately. <laughs> right, you know, yeah. a, a doctorate from Harvard means nothing, but you know somehow. You know, cousin Motu's voice you know, <laughs> wins. So. Yeah, and, and and to tie it back with like the you know your whole visceral reaction thing, right? It's like it to some extent. It's like when you're actually proven right. It's like this. This. It's a. It's such a hollow victory. Yeah. It's like you don't want to even go there and say I told you so, because the damage has already been done, and you're just like disappointed. And I think that's the 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 sad part about. About that that sort of element to it, yeah. It is. It is. I, I think the sadder part for me is that um, my, you know, my memories of India once again is is from a, this. I don't want to say it predates the internet, but it, it was a time when you know uh, there was still a lot going on. You know, mm. so the India that I know is very different from the India right now, mm. right? So every time when I talk about India, I'm very cognizant of the fact that. I can't talk about the India from 10 or 15 years ago like it is the India right now because then I'd be making the same mistake like those conservative Indian parents from, you know, the U.S. who still think that India is in the 1950s, Mm. right? So this particular episode struck me, you know, it it once again resonated me so much because it brought back the fact that that thing still exists in 2018, right? Mm. Um, It doesn't have to be all across the country. Maybe it's just, you know, in particular marginal communities, but, but it's there. There is a prevalent attitude that hasn't died, and yeah, it, it was it was fascinating. It was it was infuriating. Uh, it was a lot of things. <laughs> I don't think I've had like a strong reaction to a podcast like that did. Um, okay, maybe like the second most strongest reaction. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, perfect. And uh, yeah, once again, thank you so much for recommending that. That was definitely an eye-opening episode, uh, uh, eye-opening podcast and episode for me. Uh, but now let's uh, move on to the next podcast, and this one is completely different flavor, I guess. Uh, it's called The Sporkful, and the episode is Other People's Food. We are finally talking about food on this podcast. So please, Rindo, tell us more about this. Right, Danny? Like, <laughs> crazy Like how little people talk about food in, in, in the podcast sphere. Um, so for context, Other People's Food is uh, a mini-series of five episodes within the podcast, uh, The Sparkful. Mm-hmm. And it talks about the intersectionality of food, ethnicity, race, and perception of, of, of cuisine. Mm. Uh, with every episode that I was listening, you know, it, it just kept blowing my mind. And it was, it was just freaking amazing. Right. Um, this particular miniseries explores a lot of those things. Um, the Sparkful isn't just about that. It, it covers a whole range of topics about food. And if anybody loves food or anybody just wants to uh, just chill and talk about, listen to people talking about food, the Sparkful is the place to be. Mm. But I would ask people to start with other people's food, the, the whole series. Um, but Danny, I guess I do want to focus on episode two yeah. of the miniseries, which is um, other people's food. And they talk about what one one of the guests in that episode calls the hierarchy of taste. Hmm. This fascinated me so much. Um, so this guy is uh, is is a professor. His name is Krishnendu Ray. Um, he is um, a food professor. Yeah. And um, long story short, uh, Krishnendu Ray's um, you know opinion is that a lot of our perceptions of what is good food or not is often not dependent on the quality of food. It's often dependent on how we perceive the particular community that that food comes from. Uh, It's about if a particular community is doing well economically or if there's, you know, um, what's, what's the word? If there is a certain cultural amazingness, like I can't think of a better word for it, you know, mm. somehow that elevates the cuisine more than the actual quality of the food does. And, you know, so he talks about this great length and I, you know, I'm trying to understand what he's trying to say. And he's like, you know, sometimes if a particular food is from a particular community that is considered richer, they'd be like, we would upgrade that. We would not consider cheap ethnic food. We'd consider it like, you know, exotic, you know, foreign food from, you know, the, the, the distant mountains of Timbuktu or some shit like that, right? Um, One of my favorite examples in in the podcast that he mentioned, that that he talks about, is that um, Italian food um, was considered extremely cheap in the late 1800s and the early 1900s because at the time there was a massive influx of Italian immigrants in the U.S. at the time. Mm. So people did not want to eat Italian food because it was associated with, with poor people. And they're like, fuck, I don't want to eat Italian food because it's, it's poor people food and I don't want to touch it. Um, over time, Italian, the influx of Italian immigrants, you know, um, went down and the influx of immigrants from other countries came in. And, you know, over time, 
Italian food has has raised in its stature. And it's nothing to do with the fact that the spaghetti somehow tastes better or the pizza is crunchier or more delicious and tender. It's simply because it is no longer associated with something that is, to take a local phrase, something that is low SES. Mm. Um, This fascinated me. And, you know, the more I listened to it and then I started doing some associated, you know, Googling and stuff. And this also resonated with me because I found a lot of parallels with, with Singapore, too. Yeah. You know, um, and some of the examples that I was looking at was that um, I find that um, Filipino cuisine and uh, cuisine from Bangladesh tends to not have the same cultural imprint or the same kind of um, gushing reviews. Because of uh, Singaporeans' perceptions of these communities. Correct. Um, And once again, I want to highlight that this is not inherently a Singaporean thing. This is generally a people thing. Mm. People don't like poor people. It, it's just, it's just, the, you know, the, the, the sad reality of it, you know. And a lot of this, you know, feeds back into how food is also perceived. Once again, this is something that I'd never considered. But then the more I thought about it, I'm like, oh, shit, you're right. Um, and, you know, to be fair, a lot of South Asian cuisines, you know, Sri Lankan, Indian, uh, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, um, Afghani cuisines tend to have, you know, they have like similar roots, so to speak, right? Right, right. Um, but at the same time, despite the fact that there is a significant number of Bangladeshis living in, in Singapore, transient as they are, um, you know, the, the cuisine and, and their cultural imprint doesn't shine through, hmm. you know? For some reason, their cuisine have to cross more gates in the media than others. Um, and, and there are actually, like, um, I, I did go to, I, I remember stumbling upon a Bangladeshi restaurant, uh, you know, it, it is right next to Mustafa. And mm. I, I didn't know the fact, actually. I was just walking down the street and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, it's there. And then uh, I walked inside, it's amazing food. It is, it is pretty fantastic. Uh, and that's also what got me thinking. I'm like, huh, why do we not talk about this? Whereas, you know, uh, Japanese cuisine tends to be super popular here in Singapore, um, you know, despite the fact that there's, from various estimates, anything between 20,000 to 40,000 Japanese folks over here. Mm. Um, I'm not going to say that the number of people living in a country define whether the cuisine flourishes. Uh, What I feel is that it's often the perception of it. You know, for example, um, Japanese culture tends to be for the lack of a better word, celebrated. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, Japanese culture, it's amazing. You know, go to Japanese for the culture, to Japan for the culture, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, they're, they're distinctive and, you know, their food is amazing. I love Japanese food. Uh, but, you know, I started to think that, is it only because I love Japanese food? Or is it because Japanese food is super accessible and, and because I eat a lot more of it than I eat Bangladeshi food that I say that I like Japanese food more? Mm. You know? And we have a better perception of of Japan rather than Philippines or Bangladeshi. Yeah, that's yeah, and that that's also there. And you know, it, it's kind of a shame because uh, you know uh, I used to live in this neighborhood where there are a bunch of Filipino restaurants, and I'm like, that food is fucking amazing. Mm. Right, uh, not the healthiest. Maybe is <laughs> they dump a gallon of oil in that particular restaurant, but uh, yeah, it was pretty great. You know, and I remember having this conversation with a bunch of friends and um, I don't really talk about my opinions with respect to this. But, you know, from casual offhand conversations, I've heard people say that ah, Filipino food, not great. And what I've garnered from from the conversations was that they've had 
isolated experiences. And this is the sucky part. I've noticed that a lot of people feel that in order to get Filipino food, you need to go to Lucky Plaza. And, yeah. and you know, there is an apprehension when it comes to going to Lucky Plaza. So I started sensing that it was less about the quality of the food or any particular review of that particular food item. It was more about the fact that, oh, Lucky Plaza, I probably don't want to go there. Um, so, you know, and and this was, this was right after, you know, listening to this particular podcast. And I'm like, damn, you know, there there is definitely a correlation between um, liking a particular food and whether that community is looked upon in, in a good light. That is uh, so incredibly fascinating, Rindo. <laughs> and uh, that, that's a, a beautiful summary as well, because... Um, yeah, this episode was was uh, was incredible. Uh, the title of the episode is "What's Poor People's Food," so I guess yeah. it's it hits the nail right on the head. But uh, you know, I I was actually you know just going in with the with the idea of uh, the first story that they told, which was this uh, uh, this uh, cookbook author. I think her name is Nicole. Yeah. And she was talking with Dan and how, you know, when she was growing up, she would avoid fried chicken because it's associated with, uh, with, uh, you know, with her own culture and, and it's associated with, with being poor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, but then you come in with this must PhD level thesis about, <laughs> about food and perception. And yeah, it's, it's so incredibly fascinating. Wow, yeah. thank you for thinking that my recycled opinions are <laughs> my own. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> no, because, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, you, you, you took a lot more out of the, that episode than I did. And I'm glad you, you brought that up because, um, you know, you're talking about like parallels between Singapore, right? And, you know, the, the first thing that came to my mind immediately when you start talking about perceptions of people and how it affects food, right, was that have you ever noticed how there are very few high-end Malay restaurants in Singapore. Very few and close to none. Interesting. Compared um, to high-end Chinese restaurants. And you could go. You could say the same for well, Indian cuisine. There's more. I, I, I've 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 seen uh, more uh, high-end high-end restaurants, but and there are pops, by the way. Like I've been to a couple <laughs> of them. Like holy shit, that's it's daylight robbery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but sorry, yeah, you <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, we we we're so used to thinking of of uh Malay food as sort of this um uh folksy kind of comfort food, right? And we we're we're very comfortable I think Singaporeans are very comfortable placing it in just the hawker center or, you know, maybe like a, a small shop in a shopping mall. But I don't think they they ever consider it as a standalone restaurant selling like twenty dollar plates of you know nasi lemak or, or or stuff like that. Although I I I there probably are in maybe a few hotels that are trying to rip you off with a you know false sense of Singaporean cuisine. But yeah, yeah. What what are your thoughts on this? Well, um, you know, now that you talk about it, um, I'm I'm struggling to think of a restaurant that is. Um, you know, that is positioned as a premium restaurant, which which focuses on 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 Malay cuisine. Um, let's let's not talk about the Malaysian and Malay 
cuisine restaurants outside of Singapore. Right. Like I, I just came from came back from Australia, and in Sydney, there's there's a huge number of Malaysian restaurants, and you know, like as much as I love, you know. Uh, Nasi lemak. I don't. I don't want to pay fifteen dollars for it. <laughs> and you know what? You're right. And now that I just, I just said that, I'm like shit. <laughs> <laughs> because in in your head, it's already imprinted that this is not worth fifteen dollars, right? Yeah. <laughs> it could also do with the fact that I'm just, I'm, I'm cheap as fuck. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't pay for anything that's more than fifteen dollars. But, <laughs> but no, you're right. You're absolutely right. I, I haven't really considered. Uh, Malay food in the equation, mostly because I, I guess I felt that uh, you know Chinese, Malay, and Indian food uh, tends to be more entrenched in Singaporean culture than others. Mm. You know, so um, Japanese food, um, Korean food, um, and food from elsewhere tends to be like other food that you know would be cool if we ate it because we look cool by being open-minded and shit. Mm. Whereas you know Chinese, Malay, and Indian food tends to be like that's that's. That's Singaporean food, you know. That's like right. that's that's how it is. But once again, I, I I guess I haven't really thought about it that much. But yeah, so uh, Danny, like, so what are your thoughts about it? So, uh, you know, did you did you think that there is a correlation between um, how certain communities are perceived, like within um, among Singaporeans? Um, you know, Rindo, to be honest, right? Um. When I was going through this this series, um, uh, other people's food, the first time I listened to it, all five episodes, I thought it was uh, fantastic. But I also came away feeling that, you know, why did they politicize this so much? That was one of my gut reactions, because to me, like you know, food is all about the experience and the joy of eating and the stories of families. You know, they had they, they had one episode where they talked to Rosie Perez and she was talking about how she went back to uh, her home her home country and then she learned how to cook her home food. And, and you know, that to me is like the very essence of why people love food. So I I, I really didn't get why, why they were talking about all these things like race and culture and cultural appropriation. But you know, when you bring up Fergate, right? Yeah. And then when you bring about all these different perceptions, I think I'm finally coming around to see that other side of it. Because, you know, in Singapore, we've had controversies about food, right? The recent one being the the, the chendo, the great chendo debate. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was one of the people on the sidelines thinking that why are people wasting their time bothering about this kind of thing? But, you know, for when you bring up Fergate, I think it, it makes sense to me. Right, because like here is this Westerner coming in thinking they know the shit about your food when they barely know anything about your culture, yeah, yeah. and they get the final say, and and you know in in one of the episodes, um, I think it was the first episode, um, so Dan Dan was telling the story about how yeah, he was he was writing an article on how he thought he could improve bibimbap mm-hmm. by adding some weird <laughs> weird contraption or something to yeah. so that so that the rice can cook better so that there'll be more crispy rice and then he got like this this uh criticism from uh, this Korean American called called Nick Cho I believe yeah and he was like saying how you know um uh how it, it it's 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 he feels offended because 
you know, he is, because uh, Dan is a person of authority and he is acting like his way is the be- better way to do it, even though the Koreans have been doing this for like thousands and thousands of years, right? So it's like, it's, <laughs> he, he made the, what I thought was the weirdest analogy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of like, of, of the grandmother. <laughs> yep. So, so he was like equating to, equating Dan, uh, trying to improve on, on Bimimbap. To to Dan saying that oh this is how I can make your grandmother sexier or cooler <laughs> yeah yeah um, that that struck me as very weird too like I, I I had that image in my head for days and you know, it was a fairly uh, good image I might add but um, I guess I'm of two minds about this Danny because on the mm. one hand I do believe that you know food ought to like cuisine ought to be given the freedom to be experimented upon that's mm. how the best dishes you know exist that's what happens mm. and so there is some leeway that needs to be given for cuisines from different parts of the world coming in and doing all that stuff i guess the bigger problem with you know conversations related to appropriation of food often comes down to whether a particular community feels embittered or embattled in you know oftentimes a land that's not their own but you know, mm. oftentimes it's land that's their own that's been appropriated by other people, um, vis-a-vis um, you know in Australia and the U.S. as far as the uh, the, the native and First Nation peoples are concerned. Um, but long story short, um, there is something to be said about uh, an interesting concept called stolen valor. Uh, I picked this up on a Reddit thread about this, and um, the explanation was that um, stolen valor is this idea that. Um, in, in the U.S., if you were to impersonate um, a military officer or someone in the army or in the U.S. military and mm. go around and, you know, reap the benefits of, you know, being in uniform, you are disrespecting the U.S. Army. You are disrespecting all the pain, the suffering and the sacrifice that, um, you know, the military folks in the military have made for the country. Mm. And you are you know, masquerading, you know, and reaping the benefits uh, based on the actions of someone else who is probably, you know, dying, who, who gave their blood, sweat, and tears, uh, you know, for, for higher ideals. Right. So, um, I, I don't want to make a comparison between stolen valor and cultural appropriation with respect to food, but there is something to be said about a particular community who has been you know, embattled, who has constantly been on edge, constantly having to defend itself. And suddenly um, there's like some random person who has never had to deal with any of this, come in, pick and choose what he or she thinks is fancy and says that, hey, that's cool now. And suddenly 300 of that person's Twitter follows like, oh, that's cool. We're going to, you know, use that without understanding, um, you know, the background of it. Um, it's like, uh, that's the thing. So Nick Cho, with his very colorful uh, example, <laughs> kind of alluded to that. The fact was that we are a community who has been here, who have always been made to feel like an other. And we've always had to, you know, try to assimilate, try to figure things out. And, you know, there are some things that we go back to just so that we can, um, you know, stay sane. We have these anchors that we want to stick to. And suddenly this random white dude comes in, picks it up, casually says that, hey, I can make it better. And, you know, to use a commonly used phrase now, I'm just going to white explain that, you know, that these are the ways to make it better and shit like that. And 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we've uh, managed to somehow tie these two podcasts together, <laughs> talking about the the way you know um, immigrants tend to hold on to their their cultures, right, and feel very protective about it, and yep. uh, that's why they tend to be more conservative about their own traditions and cultures. Yeah, I guess um, you know we've uh, we've gone on quite 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 long enough, and uh, I you want know, to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> So sorry. <laughs> this is something uh, Raj tells me all the time. I'm like, you know, what? <laughs> stick to the time. And then four beers later, we're like, well, shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, please. I mean, you've been uh, uh, an absolutely amazing guest. Uh, uh, very, very pleased to have you on. And and yeah, so, you know, with uh, that brings the end to today's episode. Uh, Rindo, uh, for people who are interested in getting in touch with you or listening to your podcast, where can they do so? Um, so, uh, you can find us on, so our, our podcast once again, uh, is, is called living it up in lion city. Uh, my co-host and I, uh, talk about life in Singapore from the perspective of both, um, a local and a foreigner over a couple of beers. Um, I'm, I'm kind of downplaying the actual number of beers that we have, but you know, let's <laughs> that. um, so we, uh, we are on, on Spotify, we are on iTunes, uh, we are on Stitcher. If you have a podcast app, it's most likely that we're on it. Um, just check us out. Um, we're we're fairly new in the game. We've just been doing this for six months. It 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 started off as something experimental, and we're still trying to figure out what we how we want to go with it. But I think the conversation by itself is something that's fascinating to us. So if you like what we have to say, you know, just check us out. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we're also on Facebook, so Living Up in Lion City. Uh, my name is Rindo. It's R-I-N-D-O. You know, mm-hmm. For those who have a hard time understanding uh, <laughs> how to spell my name. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, if you if you like this episode, please do a big favor by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing to the Economical Rice podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. All the links and details to the shows discussed in this episode will be available in the show notes on the website, www.economicalricepodcast.com. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback for the show, you can drop a message on the social media links below. Once again, this has been your host, Danny, with special guest Rindo at the Podcast Spotlight. And again, you know, if you want to check out a new podcast from Singapore, listen to these guys. Or, you know, even just heck, just, just ask Rindo out for a beer or two. I'm pretty sure he, he won't reject you. <laughs> yeah. So Danny, you just stole the words outside of my mouth. Oh my God. Thank you. <laughs> Guys, I love beer. And there's only thing I love more than beer is free beer. Please. <laughs> <laughs> just. just <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so once again, this has been the show by podcast fans for podcast fans. Thanks, guys. See you around. <laughs>